Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Good day, everyone, and welcome to a lovely, at least so far this morning, Cape Cod crisp, sunny day. This is November 14th, and I am your volunteer reader, Doug Fagan, coming to you today, as always, from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in Mashpee, Massachusetts. As I said, it's a lovely day. Coming into the studio today, it was 41 degrees and very sunny and crisp. A lovely day indeed. And as we look at some projections for the weather for this week, it's not all bad. In fact, the more we go into the week, the actually better the weather does get. So let's take a moment and look at the weather, as we've mentioned it already, and see what lies in store for us. Today it's going to be a high of 47 degrees, starting off with some sun. And there will be a shower in some places, kind of confusing because it said mostly sunny today, but there is a possibility of an outlying shower. Tonight it's going to get down to a low of 36 degrees, going to be mostly cloudy overnight. Tomorrow, a very similar temperature, 48 degrees and partly sunny to mostly sunny for the day and a low overnight of 40. Now come Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we come into the warmer temperatures for the week. Thursday is going to be sunny and bright all day long, 57 degrees. That's nice, as a high and a low of only 45. Fri- or Friday then jumps up 4 degrees, 61 degrees, with mostly sunshine, very pleasant, and a low of only 52. And then Saturday, we're going to have some occasional morning rain, otherwise mostly cloudy, and a high temperature, not too bad, of 57 degrees. So again, today, 47, tomorrow, 48, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, 57, 61, and 57 degrees as high temperature. So, um... Really not too bad. Once we get past the day, if there's no rain, the next days until Saturday will be mostly sunny. Now taking a look at temperatures on the south shore and along the Cape, consistent as they always are, Wareham and Buzzards Bay on the west side of the canal, 49 and 48 respectively. Sandwich, Barnstable, Dennis, Hyannis, all at 47. Mashpee is 49, Falmouth 46. Then moving out to the elbow of the Cape, Chatham is 47. Same with Brewster and East Ham at 47. Moving out to the tip of the Cape, Truro 46, as is Provincetown out at Race Point on the end of the Cape, 46 degrees. How about a swim today? Well, wear your wetsuit if you don't mind looking like a seal and shark bait, as the water temperature in Usually cold, Cape Cod Bay is only 49 degrees. However, the wave heights are very minimal at 1 to 3 feet with wind direction north-northwest at 8 to 16 knots. Out on Nantucket Sound, a little warmer for those of you interested in swimming, surfing, kite surfing, whatever, at 51 degrees. Wave heights, again, 1 to 3 feet, same wind direction north-northwest, 8 to 16 knots. Knots. Now moving out to the islands, possible rain a little bit later this afternoon out on uh, 
Martha's Vineyard, but a high there at Oak Bluffs of 49 degrees today, and out on Nantucket, Seconset at 49 degrees as well. So overall, not too bad a day, and as we said, it's crisp and sunny right now, so if you're just getting up, you might want to get outside, do your errands, enjoy this beautiful day, and Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are looking very good. All right, friends, today I'll be reading to you from the Tuesday, November 14th edition of the Cape Cod Times. And a reminder, only nine days until Thanksgiving. Can you believe it? All right, let's turn to page one of the Times today and see what we have there of local or regional interest. Our first article of local interest today is entitled, on page one, The Low Rumble of Grinding Stones. And it talks about the Stony Brook gristmill in Brewster and the fact that it has many fans. So let's see what this article says. Obviously, it has a dateline of Brewster. And here is the article. And it's accompanied by several pictures, which I'll mention a little later. And here's the article. As yellow leaves sifted down from the trees outside the Stony Brook gristmill on Saturday morning, Yellow cornmeal sifted out from between antique granite millstones inside the restored 19th century mill and slid down a small chute into a metal trough. Sitting on a low wooden stool beside the container, Head Miller, Doug Erickson, paused in the midst of scooping newly ground meal into a linen bag, tilting his head to listen. It sounds like we're out of corn, he said his practiced ears picking out a subtle change of sound in the low rumble coming from the grinding stones. Volunteer assistant miller Scott Leonhardt peered into the hopper perched above the encased millstones and nodded. Yes, we are, he confirmed, quickly hefting a bag of yellow cornberries, dried kernels stripped from their cobs, and pouring in several pounds worth. So keeping the grindstones fed at Stony Brook Grist Mill in Brewster leads us into our next paragraph. It was a constant task as the two men worked nonstop to keep the grinding stones fed and to keep up with the pace of customers filing in to buy cornmeal milled the old-fashioned way, between stones turned by the power of water. Saturday saw the season's last turning of the gristmill's water wheel, fed by Stony Brook on its way down to Cape Cod Bay, as the millers ground the last of this year's corn to produce what has become an end-of-season tradition, holiday cornmeal. And it proved to be a particularly popular commodity this year. It's been crazy, said Erickson, who's been at the job of turning corn into meal at the mill for more than a decade. Leonhard agreed, noting that they've seen some very busy milling days in the two years he's been assisting, but none like this. Erickson said the line for the holiday cornmeal grinding began as early as 8.30 in the morning, an hour and a half before their advertised opening time. So throughout the morning, the two men shifted back and forth between manning the antique cash register, filling cloth souvenir bags and paper sacks with commercial cornmeal as it flowed out from the millstones, or folding recipe flyers and keeping the hopper fed with cornberries. This next statement, over the summer, while we ground 2,000 pounds, leads us into 
our next paragraph. So they ground about 200 pounds of corn or so. They'd have a starting stock for the holiday sale. But by 11 a.m. that morning, they were already running out of that store and were rapidly emptying the remaining bags of corn berries. Much of the corn was sourced from the Lake Champlain region, but there were some bags of blue corn from Exeter, Rhode Island, brought in to supplement the supplies shipped in from New York at the start of the season. Over the summer, we ground 2,000 pounds. Over 10 days, we did 200 pounds a day, said Erickson. On Saturday, he estimated they churned out easily 400 pounds of additional cornmeal, and still there was not enough to keep the grinding going as long as they'd had hoped. The millers ended up having to shut down nearly two hours earlier that day than expected. Among the customers who lined up outside the doorway, up the stairs, and onto the sidewalk were young families and older couples, longtime Brewster residents, and visitors from other parts of the Cape and even out of state. As they waited, they were served cups of hot apple cider and muffins made from cornmeal ground actually at the mill. So why visit an old grist mill in Brewster? Well, for some, the lure of the mill was to show their children an age-old production process actually in operation. People are really into how the mill operates, said Leonhardt, who gladly answered questions as he and Erickson watched and worked. For others, it was all about nostalgia and about capturing the essence of simpler times in a bag of cornmeal made the way it was made along that same stretch of Stony Brook as far back as the year 1663. One customer, Pam Barbie of Hyannisport, was thrilled to be able to take home a couple of bags of water-turned stone-to-ground cornmeal. She's lived on Cape for five years, she said, and only just discovered the Brewster Grist Mill this particular weekend. My friend is visiting from Pennsylvania, and we got on Facebook yesterday to see what was going on and what we might be able to do, she said. When her friend pointed out the holiday cornmeal sale in Brewster, Barbie recounted, I said, oh my gosh, we have to go. You just can't find anything else like this around here. <clears throat> She said she's been passively looking for a place like this ever since she moved to the Cape. Her great-grandfather ran a mill like Brewster's in Teleco Plains, Tennessee, at the base of the Smoky Mountains. And as someone hailing from the South, Barbie said she's serious about her cornmeal. She uses her grandmother's cornbread recipe and makes it the same cast-iron pan her grandmother actually used way back when. The key is a hot pan. The oil in the bottom has to bubble, Barbie revealed. Another customer, Emily Peters from Albany, New York area, was visiting a friend on Cape and was also thrilled to buy some old-fashioned stone ground cornmeal from Brewster's Millers. She, too, continues to use her mother's cornbread recipe and has very fond memories of it from her childhood. We had it on Sundays with butter and maple syrup. It was crispy on the edges, Peter said. Her mother would also use a cast iron pan, which she got sizzling hot. 
before pouring in the batter, she said. When the cornbread came out, it was served immediately with butter and maple syrup, which was warmed up first so it wouldn't chill the cornbread. It was delicious, Peter said. To me, that's comfort food. The Stony Brook Gristmill and Museum are typically open Saturdays in July and August. Special events such as the holiday cornmeal grinding and sale may be scheduled at different times of the year. You may follow the mill on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Stony Brook Gristmill Brewster for updates on any activities going on at the gristmill. And I mentioned earlier, as we began the article, that there were several pictures. It shows Miller, Doug Erickson, settling in for a morning of grinding corn beside the mill and looking it over. And it shows also Scott Leonhart clearing away fallen leaves in the waterway at the Stony Brook Grist Mill and as he was getting ready for the holiday corn mill. And then it also shows various customers lining up as volunteer assistant Scott Linhart brings bags of newly ground cornmeal to the counter for the holiday sale. So evidently it was a very successful time, a Saturday at the Grist Mill in Brewster. A lot of people went home happy, and that's what counts. All right, let's move on to another article here on today's Tuesday, the 14th of November, Cape Cod Times, page 1. This next article is entitled, High Rents in State Program, questioned. It's by James Francis from the Boston University State House Program. And here, friends, is the article. A housing development program for the 26 gateway cities in Massachusetts that was a key part of the new tax relief bill is raising questions about what is, quote, market rate, end quote, when it has already subsidized one-bedroom units that rent up to $4,654 a month. Barnstable is one of those gateway cities. The Housing Development Incentive Program has subsidized millions of dollars to create housing units in the Commonwealth, but a report by the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute argues the program subsidizes only unaffordable housing, with rents that can be shockingly high and with no limits on increases, including a Malden Center development where one-bedroom units can cost up to $46.54 a month. That's $4,654. But supporters defend the program, which operates largely outside Greater Boston, as necessary to promote mixed-income communities. Amid a growing housing crisis in Massachusetts, the recent tax relief bill granted $327 million over the next 10 years to the Housing Development Incentive Program for tax credits to develop housing containing at least 80% market rate units. The statute defines market rate as units that are priced consistently within prevailing rents or sale prices in the municipality. Despite the need for 175,000-plus units of affordable housing in Massachusetts, the legislation is notably silent in defining affordability. Market rates sound so innocuous, said Judith Leibin of Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. Well, think of the Massachusetts market, and you know that means it 
means very high rents. So Barnstable is addressing market rate housing, so says a town official. The Barnstable Town Council has approved six housing development incentive program projects with two completed, Barnstable Director of Planning and Development Elizabeth Jenkins said Monday. The largest project featured a developer turning a former vacant nursing home across from the high school into 53 housing units, including 10 that are deemed as affordable ones. It is important to recognize HDIP is a tool that was designed for Massachusetts gateway cities not to address affordable housing, but rather to address market rate housing, said Jenkins. We know these projects can be very difficult to get off the ground and to finance. The town has adopted eligibility standards for developers to de- to benefit from the Housing Development Incentive Program. That's HDIP, Housing Development Incentive Program. Those standards include whether the project increases the number of new residential housing units, offers a diversity of housing units, influences the neighborhood positively, or represents the redevelopment of underutilized sites. Having this incentive helps make those mixed-income projects feasible and able to proceed, said Jenkins. The projects that have gone forward, they may not be deed-restricted units, but I would definitely call them naturally occurring attainable housing in our communities. So market rate rents out of reach for average renter's wage in parts of Massachusetts is the statement that leads into our next paragraph. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition reported that an hourly wage of $31.98 is needed to afford a two-bedroom market rate unit in eastern Worcester County. Renters, however, are estimated to earn, on average, $18.22 per hour, a below-average of $13 plus needed for the other rent. This discrepancy puts market rate housing rents out of reach for many folks in Worcester. Last month alone, 3,120 eviction cases were filed in Massachusetts. To Liban, the House Development Incentive Program, quote, ignores the dire affordable housing crisis that the Commonwealth is in, end quote. If you look at HDIP and ask, where is this Commonwealth's need for housing? Who needs housing? Is it any housing that we want, like 12,500 units that aren't affordable at all? No portion of them is affordable. Is that what we want? Do we care about the number of units for housing rather than what kind of units available and to whom, she asked? Well, tax credits are limited to Gateway City. That statement leads us into our next paragraph. Another feature of the Housing Development Incentive Program is that only developers in gateway cities are eligible to receive the tax credits. The 26 cities are enormously different cities, Leibin said. While the need to revive downtown and have more middle-class people come live in what are fairly low-income communities might be true for some gateway cities, HDIP doesn't differentiate at all between, say, Malden, Quincy, Lowell, or 
Fall River. The state program requirement of 80% market rate units leads us into our next paragraph. Andre Leroux, the director of the Gateway Hubs project at Mass INC, acknowledged the differences in housing markets across the Gateway cities. Nonetheless, he said that the Housing Development Incentive Program still works the way it's supposed to work because in the analysis that I've done, all of the projects that have been funded by HDIP, 93% of all these projects have been outside the Boston In the metro Boston area, you can actually use HDIP to increase the amount of affordability in a project, he added. Peter Dunn, Chief Development Officer of the Executive Office of Economic Development of Worcester, the city that Lyman called the poster child of HDIP's problems, stated that HDIP projects in Worcester were historically 100% market rate. Worcester's newest housing development incentive program project, however, provides for the 20% gap of affordability allowed by statute. Dunn suggested that it is best to leave the decisions of affordability to the various localities. I know in Worcester we're in a different place in terms of our market than we were five or ten years ago, and I can imagine a lot of other gateway cities might still be in that kind of market condition, said Dunn. So I think it's really best for the local community to figure out what the composition of a project is best for them and whether it has that local support rather than having it to be totally prescribed or mandated by the state level because every community is different. This statement of every community deserves to have a mix of incomes leads us into our next paragraph. LaRoe saw foregoing affordability altogether as an asset of HDIP because every community deserves to have a mix of incomes. Otherwise, through policy, we're promoting segregation. Economic segregation, which is often also racial segregation, said LaRoe. I find it really strange to be in a situation where some progressive housing organizations or social justice groups are trying to limit the kinds of housing that you can build in communities where low-income people live. Are you saying that you could only have low-income people in these communities? So housing for a mix of all incomes becomes necessity. Keith Fairley, president and CEO of housing nonprofit Wayfinders, discussed the importance of creating housing for a mix of income in communities like Holyoke, which have been devastated by disinvestment and abandonment. The city leaders in Holyoke don't want people to leave Holyoke when their incomes increase. They want people to stay in Holyoke even when they become more economically mobile fairly said, and HDIP provides the opportunity to do market rate housing alongside affordable housing because the economics and the finances of developing housing here, whether it's affordable housing or market rate housing, don't work very well without a subsidy. The rents or sales would not pay for the development costs on their own. Census data reveals that Massachusetts has lost around 50,000 residents. Ferry is hoping and hopeful that an increase in housing options in communities like Holyoke, which at its peak had 60,000 population, but today has only 37,000 people living there, can fill up the delta that we've lost in terms of our population in the Commonwealth. All right, folks, there you have it. 
maybe you're as confused as I am after having heard that article. Uh, but again, trying to address the housing issues, especially for low-income people in Massachusetts, is what this article represents. Obviously, developers and city planners and residents can be at odds in such times. All right, let's move now to page three, the Cape and Islands page. And this first article says, Deer hunting season is here, what you should know. It's by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times staff. And here is the article. Shotgun and primitive firearms deer hunting seasons will arrive on Cape Cod starting at the end of November and will come to a close near the dawn of the new year. During shotgun and primitive firearms deer hunting season, hunters are required to wear 500 square inches of blaze orange on the chest, back, and head. Wearing orange blaze is also a good idea for non-hunters who want to enjoy the outdoors during the hunting season. That is, of course, so you don't get shot. According to the State Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, DFW, hunting is a safe activity and non-hunters can safely visit the woods at any time of year. Hunting accidents among hunters are extremely rare. Accidents involving non-hunters are even more rare. Hunting is not allowed on Sundays in Massachusetts. So when is deer hunting season on Old Cape Cod? Well, the archery season for bows, and that season for deer hunting is already underway for Cape Cod, the Vineyard, and Nantucket, and it runs through November 25th, so 11 more days of hunting availability for bow hunters. Shotgun deer hunting season runs from November 27 to December 9. Primitive firearms deer hunting season runs from December 11th to December 30. Hunters can find out about regulations, licenses required, and permits at mass.gov slash info dash details slash deer hunting regulations on the internet. So tips for hikers during hunting season on Old Cape Cod. The state has published a handy online guide titled Safety Tips for Non-Hunters. Here's what they have to say. Be safe, be seen. A brightly colored orange vest or hat will help you stay visible. Avoid earth-toned or animal-colored clothing. The use of blaze orange has dramatically reduced the number of hunting-related accidents. Please note that hunters are often most active during the early morning and late afternoon when game animals are most active. Be especially aware of your own visibility during these times, especially when the light is dim. Keep pets leashed and visible. Place a blaze orange vest or bandana on your pet. Know when and where hunting is allowed. Mass wildlife lands, including wildlife management areas, wildlife conservation easements, and access areas are open to hunting. Most state parks and forests are also open to hunting, and many Towns do allow hunting on municipal lands. Learn more about lands open to hunting. Research the place you plan to visit to learn when hunting is allowed. If you're worried about visiting during a hunting season, find places to visit where hunting is not allowed or visit on Sundays and on other dates outside of the actual hunting seasons. 
and do not wear fake antlers. Make your presence known. Talk loudly or whistle to identify yourself as a person, not a deer. If you see someone hunting or hear shots, call out to identify your location. Be courteous. Once you've made your presence known, don't make unnecessary noise to disturb wildlife or hunting. Hunter harassment is against state law. Avoid confrontation with hunters. If you think you've witnessed a fish or wildlife violation, report it to the Massachusetts Environmental Police. Here's a good question. Is hunting allowed in the Cape Cod National Seashore areas? Well, hunting is permitted for deer, upland game, and migratory waterfowl, according to the Cape Cod National Seashore's hunting information webpage. All hunters within Cape Cod National Seashore must follow Massachusetts state regulations. Detailed maps showing areas open for hunting are available at Seashore headquarters in Wellfleet, the Race Point and Nauset Ranger Stations, the Salt Pond Visitor Center, and the Province Lands Visitor Center in Provincetown when the facility is open for the season. Seashore hunting regulations include the following. Hunting or the possession of a loaded weapon is prohibited on or within 500 feet of established bicycle and official nature trails. Discharge of a weapon toward or across any established bicycle or official nature trail is prohibited. And hunting or the possession of a loaded weapon is prohibited within 500 feet of any building except as authorized by the owner or occupant thereof. All right, there you have it, folks. A outline of hunting season here on the Cape especially for deer hunters. All right, let's move. Well, friends, we're nearing the midpoint of today's broadcast. And for those of you who follow us regularly, you know it's at this point in the broadcast that we typically revert to the various obituaries of the day. So let's do that now. Our first obituary today is that of Virginia J. Nay Balboni Quilliard. And that's spelled C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D. It has a dateline of Sydney. And here is the obituary. Virginia J. Balboni Coulyard, 88, passed away peacefully November 2nd at home, surrounded by family. She was born on Christmas Day of 1934 in Hyannis, the daughter of Albert and Edith Balboni. Ginny, as she was known by, was raised on Cape Cod in Sandwich and Barnstable. The Cape remained an important part of her life, visiting her son Carl and beloved cousins. She was proud of her Cape heritage, being the great-granddaughter of a lighthouse keeper and granddaughter of the village blacksmith in Barnstable, and also a direct descendant of a Mayflower family. Virginia married and raised her family in Manchester-by-the-Sea, Massachusetts. She then worked outside the home, her last job being as a receptionist for Manchester County Club. She spent many years in Florida with her husband, Albert. Her hobbies were painting, ceramics, puzzles of all types, and tracing family genealogy. She was also adventurous, often taking road trips around the country, snowmobiling, motorcycle riding, flying in a private plane in ultralights and a glider in Hawaii with her husband. She also loved going to Disney World frequently. 
Ginny located Domain with her son Douglas and his wife Trudy in 2015, living with them until she passed away. There's a huge list of various survivors, which I won't really read at this point, but I will let you know that services will be held in the spring on Cape Cod, and arrangements are in the care of Lari, that's L-A-R-Y, Funeral Home. Messages of condolence and memories are expressed at www.lariefuneralhome.com. And that is the obituary of Virginia, also known as Ginny, Couillard, C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D, who passed away in May. Our next obituary is that of Jill Lorraine Hester, H-E-S-T-E-R. Jill Lorraine Hester of Brewster passed away peacefully on November 10th at the age of 68. She was the devoted partner for 42 years of Margaret Peg Collins, loving sister to Jim Hester of Plymouth and his wife Liz. There are other various people in the family that are mentioned as survivors, and I won't read all of them at this point, but I will let you know that she was born in Lynn May 18th in 1955, the daughter of the late Arthur and Bertha Hester. She was raised in Lynn and was a 1973 graduate of Lynn Classical High School. Jillian earned a Bachelor of Education degree from Boston State University and her Master of Organizational Management from Cambridge College, both of which are in Massachusetts. Jill enjoyed traveling and spending time with her family at the Ponderosa, the home she and Peg built and shared for 38 years. She took pride in her work, spending 14 years as a case manager at Cardinal Cushing Centers in Hanover, as well as a realtor on Cape Cod in later years. Jill, also known as Jelly Bean, was an amazing cook, organizer, and instigator of fun. She was always dressed to the nines and ready to dance and celebrate any event. Above all, Jill was hilarious, keeping everyone laughing and enjoying being together with her quick wit and personality that she shared with others. Visiting hours will be held on Wednesday, November 15th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Sullivan Funeral Home on Washington Avenue, which is Route 53 in Hanover. A funeral mass will be held at Our Lady of the Angels Parish, St. Mary, on Hanover Street, Route 139 in Hanover on Thursday, the 16th of November at 9 a.m., followed by burial at Puritan Lawn Cemetery in Peabody, Mass., Donations in Jill's memory may be made to Cardinal Cushing Centers in Hanover. All right, that, friends, was the obituary of Jill Hester of Brewster. And our next obituary is that of Arthur Mott, M-O-T-T, of Falmouth. And here it is. Arthur Mott of Falmouth, Mass., passed away peacefully on November 8 at McCarthy Care Center after a long illness. Born again on Christmas Day of 1942 in Newark, our second obituary today born on Christmas Day, he was born in Newark, New Jersey. Arthur was a loving husband, father, uncle, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He was a painter for many years before he began at Falmouth Hospital in maintenance area and housekeeping before retiring. He loved to shellfish in his younger years and loved cooking for others, especially making his famous meat pies. He loved spending time with his family and playing cards. Arthur is survived by his daughter, Cynthia Mott, and her wife, Phaedra. 
A wake will be held on Wednesday, November 15th, 2023, from 11 to 1 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations on Main Street in Falmouth, with burial to follow at the St. Anthony Cemetery on North Street in Mattapoisin. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the American Cancer Society in Hagerstown, Maryland. All right, that was the obituary of Arthur Mott. M-O-T-T. Our next obituary for the day is that of Anna M. Damon, spelled D-A-M-O-N. And it has a dateline of Harwich. And here it is. It is with great sadness that the family of Anna M. Damon, age 88 of Harwich, announced her passing on November 10th of 2023. She was born to the late Pietro and Mafalda Ferlani, March 28, 1935, in Sandusfield, Massachusetts. Anna graduated from Lee High School and received an associate's degree in business. She married the late Glenard Damon, and they lived in primarily in Manchester, New Hampshire, before relocating to Cape Cod in 2018. Anna was a customer service specialist in the banking industry until her retirement. Anna had a great deal of class, style, and talent, as evidenced by her sense of fashion and choices of home decor. She enjoyed painting and creating artistic stained glass pieces that she displayed wherever she lived. She also loved antique shopping and traveling. Anna is survived by three children, Peter Damon of Manchester, New Hampshire, Patricia Stack Godden of Portland, Maine, and Carol Coppola of Chatham. She's also survived by six grandsons and six great-grandchildren and close friends. A massive Christian burial will be held on Wednesday, November 15th, 11 a.m. at Holy Trinity Church on Main Street in West Harwich. Burial will be held immediately after the service. All right, there you have it, friends. That is the obituary of Anna M. Damon of Harwich. Okay, friends, that pretty much, those obituaries pretty much exhaust the local and regional articles of news and related references in today's November 14th, Tuesday edition of the Cape Cod Times. So now we'll move on to articles of more national interest. And this next one says, High Court Adopts Code of Conduct. And it's accompanied by pictures of the Supreme Court. Here is the first one. It says the U.S. Supreme Court has been criticized in recent years for its unwillingness to adopt a code of ethics similar to those lower courts have done. And then a picture of Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court justice. And underneath that picture saying stories have detailed lavish travel. Justice Clarence Thomas has accepted from a GOP donor. So let's now move away from the pictures and into the article, which again, as I said, is High Court Adopts a Code of Conduct. However, the guide does not include any enforcement process. And this article is written by John Fritzy of USA Today Network, of which the Cape Cod Times is affiliated. And here is the article. The Supreme Court announced Monday... That's yesterday that it will honor a code of conduct for the first time in its 234-year history, a response to a litany of recent controversies involving private jet travel and posh vacations accepted by some justices 
that polls suggest have undermined a public faith in the nation's Supreme Court. For the most part, these rules and principles are not new. The court has long had the equivalent of common law, the court said in a statement. The absence of a code, however, has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in this country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. This code, which the court said was agreed to by all nine current members of the court, encourages a justice to recuse him or herself from a case if they have a personal bias or prejudice concerning a party. It says justices should not speak at events sponsored by or associated with a political party or a group that has a substantial financial interest in the outcome of any case before the court. A justice, the code reads, can accept reasonable compensation and reimbursement for travel if the source of the payments does not give the appearance of influencing the justice's official duties or otherwise appear improper. The code itself included no enforcement mechanism, an omission that the court's critics are likely to focus upon. Outside experts have previously said enforcing a code of conduct on the Supreme Court would be especially tricky, given that no other tribunal exists that could overrule a decision made by a justice or the court itself. In a statement attached to the code, the court said that Chief Justice John Roberts had directed court officials to review how state and lower federal courts have helped jurists comply with similar requirements. Roberts noted that some lower courts rely on software to help judges flag potential conflicts of interest in pending cases. The Supreme Court has been heavily criticized after a series of stories this year detailed lavish travel Justice Clarence Thomas has accepted from GOP donor Harlan Crow, as well as revelations that Justice Samuel Alito flew to Alaska for a fishing trip on a private jet in 2008 that belonged to a hedge fund manager who repeatedly brought cases before the high court. Those revelations have spurred Democrats in Congress to pursue legislation that would require the Supreme Court to adopt a code of ethics similar to what lower federal courts follow. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee have threatened to subpoena Crow and Leonard Leo, a well-connected conservative legal advocate who has appeared on many of the trips at issue, though that effort was abruptly stalled last week. It is not only conservative justices who have been the subject of ethics violations. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, a liberal, drew attention this year after the Associated Press documented that some of her aides pressed colleges and a library to order copies of books she had written in connection with public speaking events. But Thomas, the most senior associate justice, has been at the center of the bulk of the stories, many of which appeared in ProPublica earlier this year. They include revelations that Crow purchased three Georgia properties from Thomas and members of his family in 2014, a transaction the justice failed to note on his annual disclosure term and form. 
Another story documented that Crow had paid private boarding school tuition for a member of Thomas's family. Yet another, published in the New York Times, showed that Thomas purchased an RV, a recreational vehicle with a personal loan, from a wealthy health care executive. The terms of that loan have not been disclosed, but congressional Democrats say that it appears much of the principal was never repaid before it was ultimately closed. Thomas has denied any wrongdoing. In a statement released in August, an attorney representing Thomas's defended the justice's past reporting and dismissed criticisms of the gift as partisan attacks. The attorney, Elliot Burke, blasted Thomas's critics as left-wing organizations with largely undisclosed supporters that stand diametrically opposed to his judicial philosophy. Burke said that while public figures may be the targets of weaponized ethics allegation, that all Americans ultimately suffer from the criticism. While Roberts has steadfastly defended the Supreme Court's independence, the chorus of calls for some sort of response to the scandals has shown little signs of quieting this year. Three justices, Elena Kagan, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, in recent weeks all appeared to publicly endorse some form of a conduct code. As the criticism has continued, public polling has indicated that trust in the high court remains at record lows. Less than half of Americans polled said they have confidence in the Supreme Court, according to a Gallup poll in late September. Those polls have tended to show a far higher disapproval of the court among Democrats than Republicans. The ethics debate has cast a shadow over the current term, which began in October and runs through June. The court has been steadily building a docket that includes some blockbuster controversies, including a case about whether the government can block domestic abusers from owning guns, whether the abortion pill Mifepristone will remain widely available, and whether courts will have more power to curb federal agencies. All right, there you have it. The article referencing a conduct code for justices of the Supreme Court. Well, with Thanksgiving just around the corner, as I said, in nine days, it's early this year on the 23rd, here's an article that references Thanksgiving, and it says Thanksgiving costs continue to rise this year. Again, it's a USA Today article. Shoppers can expect to pay a pretty penny for their Thanksgiving meal this year, even with food at home inflation slowing to 2.4% since last October. This year's Thanksgiving will not be any less expensive. According to Wells Fargo Consumer Thanksgiving Report, quote, there are record price spreads between the wholesale price supermarkets pay versus the retail prices consumers pay, and the difference is impacting some of the most popular holiday dishes, including turkey and ham, end quote. Here's what you need to know about Thanksgiving prices this November. The average price of a Thanksgiving meal is expected to rise ever so slightly. Last year, the average cost of a Thanksgiving feast for 10 was about $64, according to the Farm Bureau. Although 2023 estimates are not yet available, the Consumer Price Index shows food at home prices up 2.4% 
this year. Even as the pace of rising grocery prices has slowed in recent months, the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that grocery prices were up nearly 17% in the past two years. So why are Thanksgiving ingredients even pricier? Well, Labor and food production costs contribute to the increasing costs of produce this year, and food production costs are estimated to increase by 4.1%. While inflation is not as extreme as last year, it is still present, and grocery store prices have still been somewhat variable, said Bernd Nelson, an economist at the American Farm Bureau Federation. Wildfires and droughts caused by extreme weather patterns impact crops' ability to grow, which is driving up prices as well. But grocery stores may be offering consumers more discounts to help lessen the financial impact of the rising costs of ingredients. So there you have it, friends. Last year's annual Thanksgiving price for a meal to provide for 10 folks was roughly $64, and it should be very similar, a bit up, maybe 2% this year. All right, let's move on. I bet you thought I forgot, but no, I haven't, about the lottery, that is. So let's take a look at the lottery now. right now for those of you who do play. Powerball and Mega Millions, nobody's won recently, and those jackpots are relatively very similar. Mega Millions, which will have a drawing tonight at 11 p.m., that jackpot is up to $245 million. The Powerball jackpot is very close at $255 million, and that drawing will be held tomorrow night for Powerball. All right, let's take a look at some of the most recently drawn numbers going to yesterday, the 13th of November. In the midday drawing in Massachusetts, those for the numbers game, those numbers drawn were 2351. Midday mass numbers game 2351. The evening drawing mass numbers game were these 6935. 6935 for the evening drawing. Mass cash drawing numbers also held yesterday, the 13th of November, were these 8, 9, 10, 22, and 30. Mass cash 8, 9, 10, 22, and 30 drawn yesterday. Powerball numbers, as I said, nobody won Powerball or Mega Millions in the most recent drawing, but the numbers for Powerball drawn yesterday were 24, 33, 35, 37, 42, and a Powerball number of 21. Repeating those, Powerball yesterday, 24, 33, 35, 37, 42, and a Powerball number of 21. In the Mega Millions drawing, the most recent one was held last Friday, November the 10th, and here are those numbers. 13, 33, 59, 68, and 70 with a Mega Ball of 8. Again, 13, 33, 59, 68, 70, and a Mega Ball of 8. So keep paying playing the lottery. Hopefully somebody out there will win. A reminder, there is a drawing tonight. Tickets are $2 each. Good luck, players. I hope somebody wins locally. Keep on. All right, friends, let's go to the lighter side of today's newspaper. 
And go to the Ask Carolyn column, where, as you know, people write in letters for advice, of course, and direction to Carolyn, who, in her sagely way, prints her advice in the newspaper. And here's the title of this of this column. It says, New evidence indicates husband lied about a denied affair years ago. Here's the person's letter to Carolyn. Dear Carolyn, in 2019, I noticed several weird things that made me suspect my husband was having an affair. So I asked him about it, and he denied any affair and offered alternate explanation for the various weird things I was noticing. We also committed to about a year of therapy where we discovered we had some communication issues that needed some work and could help to explain the disconnect I was feeling. We worked on our marriage, things got much better, and I stopped worrying that he was cheating or that he had cheated previously. But now, years later, I just found a new piece of evidence that makes it seem extremely clear that I was actually right about what happened back in 2019. And if that is true, then he lied to me repeatedly that year and while we were in therapy. But now we have this new better marriage in which I actually believe we're on the same page and that he's being faithful. So, my question to you, Carolyn, is do I reconfront him about 2019? And it's signed, Reopening the Can of Worms. O-M. Okay, here's Carolyn's response. Dear Reopening the Can of Worms, that's, of course, entirely up to you. Specifically, up to your capacity for living in the present and counter-nuancing deceit. Can you accept the likely affair as the trigger you needed at the time to do the work your marriage required? Is it possible your acceptance of his alternate explanations in 2019 was a kind of willful ignorance to allow your marriage to move forward? And if yes to both, is that a good enough reason for you to drop this now, or do you need him to have been telling you the truth for the progress, that progress you've made to be worth anything? These are not loaded questions. The range of what people can accept is huge. And at what point each of us falls is so personal. If you can't abide having been lied to, it is un if it undoes the good impressions you have of your husband and the current state of your marriage, then you need to share your new evidence and say you'd rather hear the worst than be handed pat self-serving explanations yet again. Likewise, if you can live with a lie, if your evidence proves true, without denial of or what-ifs, if you are able to incorporate all of what happened into a we-both-know-I-know greater good package that you prefer to leave alone than do that with no judgment from me. I would offer something more definitive, but only you know what you need, want, and are ready to set into motion. So basically, that decision is up to you, but I think Carolyn is saying, let dead dogs lie. Okay, friends, here's an article, especially if you're interested in various artifacts from the past. It says, Confederate military relics unearthed in South Carolina River cleanup. This is an Associated Press article with the dateline of Columbia, South Carolina. 
And here's the article. Hundreds of Civil War relics were unearthed during the cleanup of a South Carolina river where Union troops dumped Confederate military equipment to deliver a demoralizing blow to rebel forces in the birthplace of the secessionist movement. The artifacts were discovered while crews removed tar-like material from the Congare, that's C-O-N-G-A-R-E-E river, and bring new tangible evidence of Union General William T. Sherman's ruthless Southern campaign toward the end of the Civil War. The remains are expected to find a safer home at the South Carolina Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum in the state capital of Columbia, South Carolina. Historical finds include cannonballs, a sword blade, and a wheel experts belong believed to be, have belonged to a wagon that blew up during the two days of supply dumps. The odds of finding the wagon wheel are crazy, according to Sean Norris. It's an interesting story to tell, said Norris, the archaeological program manager in an environmental consulting firm called TRC. It's a good one that we were able to take a real piece of it, rather than just the written record showing this is what's happened. An unexploded munition got demilitarized at Shaw Air Force Base. Norris said the remaining artifacts won't be displayed for a couple more years. Corroded metal relics must undergo an electrochemical process for their conservation, and they'll also need measurement and identification. Dominion Energy crews have been working to rid the riverbed of toxic tar first discovered in 2010, at times even operating armor-plated excavators as a safeguard against potential explosives. State and local officials gathered Monday to celebrate early the completion of the $20 million project. South Carolina Republican Governor Henry McMaster said this preservation is necessary for current generations to learn from history. All those things are lost on us today. They seem like just stories from the past, McMaster said. But when we read about those and when we see artifacts and see things that touched people's lives and hands in the past, it brings us right back to how fortunate we are in this state and this country to be where we are. All right, that's the end of that article. Well, friends, we've pretty much come to the end of today's broadcast of the Cape Cod Times for Tuesday, November 14th. It's been my pleasure to read to you today from that edition, and I'll certainly look forward to reading to you next Tuesday, the 21st, which will only be two days prior to Thanksgiving. So I hope that you're preparing for family or friends, relatives, whatever the case may be, for your Thanksgiving dinner. Turkeys will be going quick, so reserve yours now. Okay, this has been your volunteer reader, Doug Fagan, and I'm signing off today, wishing you a good week and a good health from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in Mashpee, Massachusetts. So long for now.